everybody. Got a bit of a croaky voice tonight. It's actually quite sexy, isn't it, really? <laughs> I don't know if you're allowed to say that from the pulpit. <laughs> but God invented sex anyway, so that's okay. <laughs> well, we're doing a series at night on what would Jesus say to and uh, last week we heard Jonathan preach and, you know, there are lots of things about the Christian faith that people find offensive. And probably the number one thing that people find offensive in Christian faith is the exclusivity of our claim that there is only one God and there is only one way to that God and that is through Jesus Christ. And Jonathan really unpacked that last week. And you know, there is another claim uh, or another offence, I should say, that um, people get very upset about in the Christian, uh, about the Christian God. And that is in relation to if he really is God, if he is a good God, if he is all powerful, then why is there so much suffering and pain in this world. So the issue of pain and suffering is a big blockage for people wanting to pursue our God. Two things that are big blocks to Christian faith. And Hillary, an English undergraduate, said, I just don't believe the God of Christianity exists. God allows terrible suffering in the world so he might be either all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering or else he might be all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good or the all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. And I think that is a belief and a claim that many non-Christians have. But you know, the question of whether God is good and all-powerful, and if he is, why doesn't he intervene in this suffering world, is something we're going to hopefully try and unpack and answer tonight. What would Jesus say to a suffering world? Well, the first thing he would say is that Suffering was never meant to be part of this world. It really wasn't. If we go right back to the beginning of the Bible, we'll look in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and we'll see that when God made the heavens and the earth and all that is in the earth and on the earth, he said that it is good. And when he said it is good, it actually reflected his character because God is good. And it was beautiful. And, and, and then when he made Adam and Eve and, and they walked with God in daily community with him through the Garden of Eden, there was no suffering. There was no pain. It was paradise. And we see in Romans 8, 20 to 23, it says, against its will, everything on earth was subjected to God's curse. All creation anticipates the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom 
from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And even we Christians, although we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, we also groan to be released from pain and suffering. So here we see right up in the New Testament that Paul reflects upon the fact that we still live in a fallen world and the world itself groans. And we know that, don't we? Don't we just see that all too clearly around us? We were talking about Gary Piper and it just breaks my heart because when he and Rosie and the family left here some 12 months ago, he, he was a well man. And I remember Jonathan um, going to visit him and, and coming back and having had a conversation with him saying, on a scale of 1 to 10, what's your pain like? And, and Gary said, it's 11. And that was one thing that they could not get under control was the severity of his pain. And you would have to ask, Lord, this was a man who was a pastor. This was a man who was a chaplain in the army. This was a healthy, strapping young man of 52. And don't let anyone say he wasn't. Um, and yet he was struck down and, and struck down in a really severe way, in a horrendous way with extreme pain, which was hard to get under control. And we know that last week, he was released of that pain. He went to be with Jesus. It says in this scripture that as Christians, we will not be exempt from pain and suffering in this world. <coughs> Excuse me. So if God... Just take a sip. If it wasn't God's intention for this world to experience suffering, then what happened? And, and how do we know that God truly is all-powerful, that he is the all-powerful God uh, that we're led to believe, that he created the heavens and the earth and everything in it? Well, in Psalm 33, 8 to 9, it says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. There is no de denying from Scripture that God is all-powerful. In Deuteronomy 4, 35 and 39, it says, The Lord, he is God. There is none else besides him. He is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath. There is no one else. And in Deuteronomy 32, 39, it says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. When Moses was confronted with God and he said, well, who should I say sends me? God says, tell them, I am sent you, send you. No other word, no other explanation, just I am. 
from our own experience and from scripture, we know that God is all powerful. And we also know that God is good. We know it from the first two chapters in Genesis when he said that everything that he created was good and this goodness reflected his character. But in 2 Chronicles 7, 3, it says, he is good and his love endures forever. And in Psalm 33, 8, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't know about you, but I truly believe that in spite of my circumstances, many, many times, I truly believe those two statements, that he really is all-powerful and that he really is good. And so to get our heads around this truth, that we can believe that and claim that, then why? Why doesn't he just come and stop the suffering and stop the pain in this world? Well, I think the first thing that we have to understand is the nature of suffering. It's no good saying, God, you are all-powerful and you are good, so come and do your part. Well, you see, God did do his part before the fall. What he did was that he loved his creation so significantly that he risked the very thing that could cause separation from him and us. And that very thing was that he gave us free will. He gave the very creatures that he created a mind of their own to choose between good and evil, to love him or to walk away from him, to deny him. And as a result, over the history of time, man more often than not has chosen to deny him rather than to love him. And that denial and that a choice of free will has actually resulted in sin. And sin is the cause of most of the world's suffering today, both personal sin, the sin that we commit ourselves, and the sin that is deposited or caused by others towards us and to, to others. When I was in Malawi, a couple of years ago, we were leaving. And as we were leaving um, the airport, there was a news flash on the television screens. And it actually said that 13 presidents, 13 leaders of 13 separate countries in Africa had found to be corrupt. And that these leaders had wasted their countries, had stripped their countries of all their wealth, these countries had deteriorated into civil war and there was starvation and famine. And worse still, these presidents were now, um, you know, on the run, so to speak, and had embezzled literally millions and millions of dollars and siphoned them off into overseas funds. Millions of people are suffering 
through starvation, through lack of good governance structures, through basic necessities, just not happening in these countries. Not because God is not good or, or powerful, but because man has chosen to sin. And in Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nicky Gumbel, in his book, Searching Issues, says that some research estimates that perhaps as much as 95% of the world's suffering can be accounted for as a direct result of personal sin and sin by others. In fact, all suffering is the result of sin, either directly as a result of my own sin or the result of someone else's sin or indirectly as a result of living in a fallen world, as a result of all creation groaning, as it says in Romans 8. Tim Keller in his book uh, says, The price of sin is great. And suffering in this life is in some measure a consequence of sin. Indeed, this is a world well suited to sinners, the discomfort reminding us that all is not well in our relations with our maker. Whereas the cry of our post-enlightenment generation is, how can God be so cruel? The cry of earlier generations pre-enlightenment was one like a man like Martin Luther would say, how can God be so merciful? The reason we find it so difficult to say, how can God be so merciful, even in the midst of worldwide suffering, is because we fail to appreciate the seriousness of sin and the pure and good character of God who stands in opposite to sin. So suffering results from our own sin. But suffering, actually, in the Bible, incredibly, can also result as a um, consequence of our goodness. And you might find that hard to believe. But in 1 Peter 3, 13 to 18, it says, Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't be afraid and don't worry. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if you are asked about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But you must do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak evil against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants rather than to suffer for doing wrong. So the inference here is that particularly for Christians, we will suffer, especially if we are obedient to God. Now, I think we need to stop here for a moment and think about that because I think if you're anything like me, You'll probably have the mindset that, you know, I love God. I obey him. 
I'm a good person. I read his word. I pray. I try to live a holy and just right. So basically, my life should reflect that, you know, generally speaking, maybe 95% of the time. I really should have a pretty good life. I should prosper. Well, this scripture tells us that if we are doing all those things, in some ways the opposite can be true, that we will actually suffer, that we'll actually experience pain. And I wonder how many of us can say that we've ever really suffered physically, spiritually or emotionally for God. Some of you here might experience that at home. You might be the only Christian. Some of you might experience it at school or at uni or in your workplace because you stand up for Jesus. But is that our usual experience? God says that that is something that we will experience if we obey him. And lastly, there is suffering that originates from God as well as from the devil. And Jonathan mentioned Job. And Job was a man that had everything. He had great wealth. And in those days, men that were blessed with great wealth, the the original assumption was that they were holy and they were upright and they were walking with God. And if they did that, then God would bless them. And so God was, Job was one of the wealthiest men at that time. And we see in the first two chapters of Job that Satan and God enter a wager over Job's life. And Satan had been roaming the earth and God says to Satan, where have you come from? And he said, I've come from roaming the earth, going to and fro in it. And God said, Have you thought about my servant Job? There is no one like him. He's quite blameless and morally upright. And Satan basically said that the reason that Job loves you, the reason that Job is upright is because you're blessing him. You're giving him all this wealth. He said, take away all the crutches that he has. Take it all away and then see if he still loves you. And so God says in, verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 12, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man him, himself do not lay a finger. And we know from the rest of that story that Satan actually does destroy everything that belongs to Job, his family, his livestock, his possessions, his slaves, And in fact, he he allows Job to be covered in these boils and he ends up, um, the only thing he has to do is to um, throw ash, the ash that is left from all of his worldly possessions and to throw it over him. And we would say, once again, I thought God was good. I thought God was powerful. What's he doing doing this to a man that loves him and that God loves as well. And I think we can be like that. 
I think we can often in our own pain and in our own suffering have the focus just always on us. We can look at our own circumstances and say, God, you're not fair. God, why me? God, I don't want this pain anymore. I don't want this suffering in my life. You are, you are an unfair God. You are not good. And yet the book of Job is actually not a book primarily about suffering. Oh, it's all about suffering in one way. But the real heart of the book of Job is about a wager. It's about a gamble and it goes right back to the first two chapters in Genesis where God gambled and wagered his beautiful creation on the fact that they would love him even if he um, was absent from them or departed from them for a season, that their love was not dependent on what he could do for them but that they would love him in spite of blessing, in spite of circumstances. And as we see in the working out of Job, Job comes to a point, as Jonathan said earlier in Job 13, 15, Job got to that point where everything was removed, including the blessing and including the presence of God in his life. And he had nowhere else to go. And he said, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. And we sometimes get this idea of just and unjust from, if anything, a secular evolutionary view of life. And we, we are immersed in an evolutionary secular view of life, which really at the heart of it depends on death, destruction and violence of the strong against the weak. Violence and destruction and suffering would be pretty normal. We just have to look at nature and to see how ruthless nature can be. And so what right does perhaps a non-believer or an atheist have a claim to say that there is unjust suffering in the world when really the foundation of belief that they build their position upon is one that is based on a vicarious evolutionary process that ignores and separates out from God. Alvin Plantinga said, could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness? If there were no God and we just evolved, I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And there is no way to say there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of a good and powerful God. Does that make sense to people? 
So what about that 5% that we can't explain, that is not a result of a world that has fallen and therefore all creation is groaning until a new world arrives or, or is a result of personal sin or sin by others or a result of sometimes God allowing sin, uh, suffering or the devil himself. What about that 5% that Nikki Gumbel can't explain? Well, God doesn't let himself off the hook of human suffering because in Jesus Christ, God experienced the greatest depths of pain. Christianity doesn't provide the reason for each and every experience of pain, but it provides deep resources for suffering with hope and courage in the midst of that suffering instead of bitterness and despair. You see, God, who is good and all-powerful, answers the question of suffering and intervention into our suffering through Jesus Christ, through the Son that he gave up for us. You see, Jesus was illegitimate and all of his siblings, of all his siblings, and was the one marked by questionable conception. Jesus was a refugee. Jesus was mocked and ignored by his family and friends, some of his family. Jesus had no fixed address. Jesus was lonely and never married. Jesus faced popular opposition. Jesus was tortured Jesus died for our sins. Jesus is God's answer to suffering. In 1 Peter 2, 2, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. God is not a remote God. He was not only willing to get his hands dirty, he was willing to get them pierced for us. Dorothy Sayers says in her play, The Man Born to be King, for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and has played fair. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and lack of money to the worst horrors, pain, humiliation, defeat, despair and death. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and felt it was all worthwhile. You see, we have a choice in the midst of our sufferings. We have a choice to come to the throne of grace because we have a high priest, as Hebrews 4, 15, 16 says, who is not unable to sympathise. And that word sympathise literally means suffer with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help us in our time of need. We have this choice. We can choose that in spite of our circumstances, God is truly good and all-powerful and he exhibited that most definitely by his sending his son Jesus to die to bear our sins on the cross at Calvary so that death could be conquered, so that suffering and pain ultimately could be conquered. And we have a choice when we suffer. Do we go to the throne of grace or do we choose to disbelieve and give up on God, as so many people do? My beautiful dad was raised in a very violent, um, abusive family. My, my grandfather was an alcoholic and he was physically violent to my father and my grandmother. And my father used to stand between my grandmother and, and his father to protect my grandmother. And they were never raised in a, a godly home. There was no history of, of belief and faith in my family of origin. And my father, one day when he was a young man, after a, a time, a terrible time of, of beating, went down to the front fence and, and he told me that he prayed to God, a God that he didn't know. And he said, if you're there, if you're there, make this suffering stop. And the suffering never stopped. So unfortunately, he chose to disbelieve. He said that there is no God, that even if there is a God, he is not good and he is not all-powerful. Otherwise, he would intervene in the suffering. We can't always understand, but we know people's lives who have been transformed through suffering. We know that people that have gone through the fire of pain seem, and when they've chosen God, when they've gone to the throne of grace and mercy, they truly can say that they have experienced help in their time of need and they have somehow been transformed as a result of that. And that is because there is a victory in the cross of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 2, 13 to 15, it says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed all the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The question to the suffering of this world and how could a good and powerful God allow suffering, why doesn't he intervene, is answered through the cross. Prominent British pastor John W. Stott, 
acknowledge that suffering is the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith. And he says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away. And in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me, he says. He laid aside his immunity for pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings became more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolises divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. And lastly, God not only answers the issue of suffering definitively in the cross for us now in our lives, but he also has a greater story for us in the future. You see, Jesus not only wrought for us freedom from sin and an opportunity to recover our former glorious hearts, but he also modelled extreme love in the face of suffering and a model for us to remain faithful in suffering as we too have a new hope. Jesus knew that by his death, those that believe would have eternal life. And this eternal life is where there is also a promise that all suffering will cease. He says in John 16.33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. I just put that one in because I thought it was such a great scripture. But in Revelation 21.3-4 it says, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed. This is our future promise. Gary Piper is free from suffering and pain. He is in heaven. He is in glory with Jesus Christ. We can't imagine what that is like. These last 12 months are but a blink of the eye for this man who now has eternity. That means forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. We can't comprehend it. But 
forever and ever and ever. He is in glorious unity and relationship with Jesus Christ. And he is free from all pain and sin and suffering. You see, our temporal suffering is just that, temporal. It's in the blink of an eye. And those that believe in Jesus Christ, this is our hope. We have hope and freedom from pain and suffering. And somehow, and it's not definitive, I know, it's not a definitive answer, but somehow that hope helps us to make sense that where we see suffering and pain, it will not last. It will not be forever. So very briefly, our response. How are we to respond to this incredible God? (laughs) Sorry, I've got the tissues, I've got the water and I've got the strepsils. So I think I'm right. How are we to respond to this incredible God? Well, through our suffering, we may become more caring, more sympathetic, and in a profound way, more whole as people. In suffering, we we are reminded that we are not gods but we are frail human beings and maybe some of that proudness, some of that self-sufficiency and that self-reliance is maybe squashed in us and we might draw closer and closer to God. You know, we're reminded in 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him, why? From being proud And he says, my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient. Our response, like Job, should be one of faith and worship in, in the midst of suffering. Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And that is what we were doing Earlier tonight, we were praising God, blessed be your name, even in the darkness, when the darkness overwhelms, blessed be your name. Suffering can be a means into a deeper, more intimate relationship with the God who made us. Imagine. What could happen in your family and in your relationships and in your church and in your community if you were a little more sensitive to the sufferings of others because you yourself have experienced suffering? In 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 5, it says, Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion. He's a good God. And the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, 
so also through Christ our comfort overflows. And we have a responsibility to share that comfort and to comfort others. Imagine what would happen if you trusted God more fully, even in the midst of your suffering. Imagine if you gave God glory even for the bad things in your life and became open to the refining and the learnings that these hard circumstances can wrought in your character, your temperament, and finally your unflinching faith in God. Imagine if through the megaphone of suffering we found out that we had a holy discontent about the injustice and suffering in our own world, that we just couldn't help ourselves and that we want to move out of our comfortableness and our own comfort and not just focus on self and our future, our superannuation, our leisure, but that we become real agents for change as Christians always once were and should be once again in this world, this suffering and lost world to lead the world with a knowledge that God is good, that God is powerful and he has intervened in our suffering and we want to shout a megaphone to the world that that suffering has been uh, in part rescued through Jesus Christ and will eventually be completely answered through eternal life. Imagine if we were agents of change, even in the midst of our suffering. You know, I think it's true tonight. Just think of people that you know that have suffered or are indeed suffering now and that you marvel at them. You just think, Lord, they just seem to be that little bit closer to you. They just seem to be a little bit more abandoned and surrendered. They, they seem to somehow have a knowledge, um, an insight to life that, you know, me with my, my fairly comfortable life, I just don't seem to share that same experience. Sometimes the only way that we'll get closer to God is through suffering. But isn't it great to know that we have someone that will journey with us, that will walk with us in that? Don't we want the world to know that? You know, to sum up, I think sometimes suffering can look a little bit like this, a bit messy a bit hard to understand what the picture really looks like. We can't see it while we're in the midst of it. And yet God, all the while, is doing a wonderful work. I don't know how wonderful you think this is, but God, all the while, is refining and clarifying a bigger picture one that we may not necessarily be able to see. And our response is to take this and to use it to be of service to those that are hurting, to come alongside like the towel and to help and support others 
even in the midst of our suffering, to praise God in our suffering. We may not, people tonight, have a definite or definitive answer for your particular suffering, but we certainly do have a God who demonstrates quite clearly that he is good, that he is all-powerful, and that without a doubt, through the cross of Jesus Christ and the promise of eternal life, he has answered the question of suffering and pain for us personally in a very deep and profound way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you tonight and we thank you so much for all that you have done for us and all that you have wrought for us on the cross at Calvary. We thank you that in spite of our suffering, we've learned tonight that we are not exempt from it, that in fact all creation groans from it. But we know that we have one who has overcome death and the devil and that in the midst of our suffering we have one who can redeem us and who will one day ensure that we are completely free from pain. Lord, tonight, if there are people here that are suffering, that are in pain, Lord, minister to them. Help them to turn to you, to come to that throne of grace where they will receive mercy and help in their time of need. And we just give you all the glory and we surrender more and more of our lives to you in your precious and holy name. Amen.